Hi, I'm Matt Bird. I'm James Kennedy. And this is the Secrets of Story podcast. Hi, James. Welcome back. I'm not going to say anything more about this, but I read Matt's script that he talked about at the end of the last episode. And it's all about, if you remember the last episode, it's all about somebody constantly going back in time and trying to change something and revise it and revise. And I realized it's something that an editor would write. It's an editor's journey. It's all about somebody who's constantly going back and revising and revising, and then finally they have to let go at the end and just kind of let it all out. That's kind of like the, the real lesson yeah. of it, that they have to it's kind of just awesome. kind of like just push out and just live life and go forward and not be constantly going back and revising. So our advice for you is just stop revising whatever you're working on and just move forward. Move forward. Yeah, do it wrong. Make mistakes. That's, that's good advice. It's the advice of my script, and it's the advice of, of life. It's how to live your life. Here we are. We have a new topic. We have not pre-digested this topic as much as we sometimes do. James is going to hit me with it. I am going to be... It's going to be like I got hit in the face with a pie, and I'm going to have to take my fingers and wipe the pie that's in my eyes and then shake them out. Well, I'm, I'm not going to hit you that hard with the pie. I want to, like... like I'm First, watch me cook the pie, and then I'm going to serve it to you, and I'm going to slowly lift it up to your face <laughs> and then kind of smear it around. I want to do this more gently. Um, so... Okay, hit me. There's some kind of room in a script or a story... And I'm going to kind of expand on this throughout this podcast of a kind of positive passivity because I think we're kind of in thrall with all these dumb rules that people are always told to like, learn all the time about like the, this myth of the active protagonist and how the protagonist always has to be active and pushing every scene forward and, and kind of you know making things happen and making decisions that mean something. But I'm going to kind of go through a lot of other things, things that are the most some of the most beloved things, and show how if the protagonist is more active, it wouldn't be as good. It so is. I was thinking about beloved things, like, okay, like Alien, we've got like a, a very kind of like nothing main character who like, we don't even know who the main character is no. until like midway through until we find out that she's the one who's going to kill the alien. And she's just kind of like, what's her thing? Well, she's by the book, yeah. you, you know, which is kind of like, you know, in a way, a very passive thing to be. But let's put Alien aside for a while. But here's two beloved things. Let's go, let's get more modern. Um, Spirited Away. Yeah. I'll chat the other day. Oh, Chihiro. She's a lump of passive depression in the backseat of a car, like bitching about like some flowers that are dying. Then her parents get lost. And it's the parents who make the active decisions to take a shortcut, to go into this weird entrance, to enter the abandoned theme park, to eat the food. And all Chihiro does is say, like, don't do that. And she resists the action. The parents eat the magic food. She says, don't. They turn into pigs. She runs around in a panic. The boat comes. All the spirits are coming off of it. She still isn't doing anything active or making choices that matter. She meets Haku. He has he tells, tells her, do this. Eat something that makes her solid. Then she follows his instructions to get across the bridge by holding her breath. And she follows his instructions to how to get a job from the weird stoker guy. So we are about 20 minutes in the movie. She hasn't made a single choice. And I can imagine the dumb shit some note giver would give about this. He would say, oh, why not have Chihiro be the one to make the decision to take the shortcut? So like, just why don't we make her active more early on? And I think that would be terrible. And I'm leading up to a point, and I, we can multiply this, you know, um, Harry Potter, Harry is remarkably passive. Uh, Bella in Twilight is remarkably passive. James well, and the Giant Peach, James is remarkably passive. Yeah. Charlie and Chocolate Factory, Charlie is remarkably passive. They make a few choices, but mostly get swept away into some other world. They don't have a lot of control over and barely understand. People are constantly explaining things to them instead of them finding out on their own. These are all almost universally beloved things. So how can they I, be so beloved if they 
break this rule so flagrantly, and I think it's because... I, I disagree that they all break the rule, but I think some of them do. Well, okay, well, let me, let me build up to this. As long as agency increases over the whole story, you can yes. get away with it. Yeah. As long as agency never decreases, you can start with them with no agency, and you can keep them at that for a relatively long time, especially in a child, children's book, because children, their experience of the universe is that they're constantly being told what to do, they're constantly under the thumb of somebody else, and they're not really going to identify with a kick-ass kid who is constantly making all kinds of decisions that make stuff happen, because that is not a children's experience of the world. So a lot of children's books in particular are about learning how to have agency. Right. And you can't start with them already having agency. It's about, it's about somebody coming into their own. And if they're already kicking ass and making stuff happen and making big decisions at the very beginning, um, it, it's alienating, I think, to a child. And, right. And, and I, I think that these are all the, some of the biggest hits, and they all have remarkably passive protagonists. And even like when I was reading like the fourth Harry Potter book, I'm reading it out loud to my seven-year-old right now, and pages go by when Harry does nothing. There's a bunch of fascinating people hanging out, you know, making speeches, explaining things to each other. You know, there's like this big ensemble of things happening. And like a page wow. or two will go by and Harry won't even say a word because you're just caught up in this world. And I don't think but a, your main character has to be constantly making choices and creating action in every scene. And I think that's a hurtful and inaccurate advice. Well, I think the first 100 pages of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire are just dreadful. I think that it's just, you know, I was reading those books to my daughter and, you know, she was just loving it and I read the first three books and then we start reading book four and it's just a completely different author. Was she still over. loving it? <laughs> and No, she wasn't. And well, uh, My kids were wrapped through all seven books. Like, so you have like a whole chapter of just Ludo Bagman having a conversation with Barty Crouch. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, who cares about this conversation between Ludo Bagman and Barty Crouch? <clears throat> anyway, that's not your point. I think that you have a good point. So I give a lot of notes to kids' books, and, and I do sometimes do exactly what you're dreading. I will tell people, like, this is too passive. It's taking too long for this to get going. And I think one note, I, so you have written a new kids' book, which is very mm -hmm. good, which uh, I wouldn't know I, from your notes. That is not <laughs> true. I said a lot of very positive things in my notes. Uh, you didn't hear them, of course. And I think I mentioned something in my notes to you that has then come up in my notes to other people that, you know, that to a certain extent, a kid's book begins when the kid sneaks out of the house without the parent's permission or without the guardian's or caregiver's uh, permission. It begins there? That's page one? No, it's often on, sometimes it happens on page one, sometimes it happens on page 20, sometimes it happens on page 100. When it happens on page 100, the book's got a problem. I was reading your book. I'm like, wow, this sort of, you know, I sort of get my first real buy-in with your character once he sneaks out of the house to go down and hang out in a swamp. And I'm like, you know, wow, that is just this real visceral moment of a book, especially a kid's book, kicking in the moment when they're out of parental control and protection. It's interesting with Harry Potter. It does take a long time with Harry Potter. You know, at least he he's in a conflict situation. He's not in a beloved or protected situation, which helps. He is, you know, we know somebody's trying to kill him from page one. We know that his caregivers, his supposed caregivers don't care about him and don't like him. We see him do something active in the most passive possible way when he frees the snake. Like he doesn't do it intentionally. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know he's doing it. But we do have the sense that he has done something 
heroic. And I think we like that he doesn't flinch from the snake when the snake comes towards him. He accepts him. that it happens. He accepts, and he accepts that he did it. Like, he kind of knows he did it. Mm-hmm. But he certainly could not have done it more passively. He, mm-hmm. he had no idea he was doing it. Imagine a note giver saying, what if he <laughs> actually... Like, there's so many ways to follow the rules so and make it terrible. Yeah. Uh, no, I agree. I think that it's a very tricky line to walk. I think Spirited Away could have worked if she had said... You know, let's check out this abandoned amusement park. I don't think that would have made that an awful I movie. disagree 100% because it's her passivity that she has to get over. That's it's the true. whole journey that she's on. But but she does Her become... last line is like, she's like, oh, you know, are you going to be ready for school? And she's like, I think I can handle it, which is not how she was at the beginning. Right. If she was like kind of saying, mom, dad, I'm Hilda. Like, I'm Adventure Girl, and I want to like go and check out this weird old path, then there's no journey. Right. Well, it would be a different journey. It would be a journey to, you know, learning not to be heedless and learning to be, yeah, you know, Yeah, Spirited Away is a perfect movie, so there's no reason to change the frame of it. I, I guess, I guess, sure, it's a masterpiece. I don't know about the phrase perfect movie. That's a, that's a, that's a big, that's a big phrase. That's a big claim, but it's a masterpiece. I would certainly agree with that. I would not call her a passive protagonist, though. I mean, she starts, for, for, no, she very quickly starts just working her ass no, off. No, okay, that's the thing. I didn't say they have to remain passive the entire time. I said, the people, um, like, the uh, note givers say, have this idea, like, active protagonists are good, so make them active from the get-go. That way right. we'll love them. And I don't think it's true. It's, try, it's true for Indiana Jones or whatever, but I don't think it's as true for, in every case, I don't think it's true, especially in kids' stuff, when she, they bond with the passivity. Right. She is remarkably passive for the first 20 minutes of the movie, and then she slowly becomes more and more active, making decisions that have greater effect on the world and are more wrenching decisions. Right. Um, and it's that, that aspect is always going up. So I think we can tweak this active protagonist rule because there is a such a thing as this positive passivity, this kind of appealing passivity. And I think that's what Twilight is that's, about. It's very appealing passivity. Well, let's say, okay, you know, what, you, know what, you, know what's, you know what else is tricky? Writing. Writing well is, <laughs> is it you know, but is it the passivity that is appealing, yes. or are these characters appealing despite being passive? I, I think it is a passivity. I, I do think it is that it speaks to children's experience of the world. Yeah, and if the, the person was active, it would be alienating. And we need to. The, I think the, so. You made at this point. Actually, when you were talking about Wrinkle of Time in your, yes, on your blog let's recently. Talk about Wrinkle in Time. And so when I watched the movie of Wrinkle in Time, I'm like, how come I never noticed she's such a passive protagonist in a really off putting way? I found her passivity in the movie to be really off putting. And I'm like, how come? But gee, this isn't any different from the book. Like, it doesn't mm-hmm. seem like they've changed the book very much. And yet, boy, I guess this is just the nature of movies where passivity is more frowned upon in movies and I'm less willing to put up with You nailed it passivity. how it is. <laughs> right. I was like, I guess I'm just less willing to put up with her passivity in the movie than I was in the book. And then I reread the book and then I rewatched the movie and I'm like, okay, you know, it's just these very subtle differences. And I think that when I say, when I'm sort of disagreeing with what you're saying here and I'm saying I think these characters are likable despite their passivity, the authors are subtly getting away with passive protagonists by having them be just active enough at just the right times. And I think with Meg, you know, I found that one of the huge differences that I would never would have spotted if I hadn't been carefully picking over it with my Duke comb between the book and the movie is that when Mrs. Wetsit shows up at the beginning of Ringland Time, she is, you know, in the book, she is this old gray-haired woman who is seemingly just wearing rags. She's, she's homeless. She's a she homeless woman. Homeless. She's a yeah. tramp. She is a homeless woman. She is wearing rags. 
and she is, and it is wet and it's dripping wet outside and she's dripping wet. And she says, I need to get in out of the storm. And, you know, will the mom let her in? Yes, the mom does let her in. And Meg's like, oh, why are, you letting, why are you letting this tramp in? And then Meg <clears throat> takes this leap of heart where Meg is like, oh, it is, she is just this poor homeless woman. I'll make her a sandwich. And Meg makes her a sandwich. Well, which, I mean, now, I don't think I would have thought of that as being like, oh, that's her. It's being an active protagonist, making her a sandwich. Mm -hmm. But then in the movie, Meg says... I'm going to call 911. <laughs> because, of course, she's not a homeless woman. She's Reese Witherspoon, who is wearing an elaborate gown and high heels. Yeah. But, uh, so, and I was like, that is the whole difference between the movie and the book, is that Meg tries to call 911, and Meg wants to get rid of this woman. Yeah. Because I realized, oh, the whole, the whole book is a Christian parable, where it's like, I came to you as a homeless woman, and you took me in, you essentially washed my feet, they essentially wash mm -hmm. her feet, and you you fed me, and then I will reveal to you that I'm actually an angel sent by the Lord in disguise, and I will give you the key to solving all your problems. I will I will tell you of a great miracle, a great miraculous occurrence, that the Tesseract is real. Mm -hmm. And that is the book. And it's all put into motion. You don't notice it, but it's put into motion essentially by Meg making a sandwich for Mrs. Watson. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is her act of Christian charity that then allows her to find out that this, there's this angel in her life who is going to send her on this miraculous her journey. Her act of making that sandwich <laughs> is somebody else tells her, make a sandwich. And she goes and she does it. Or she says, like, I would like a liverwurst and cream cheese, please. <laughs> and then so she does it. She, she does not even an active choice. She passively accepts the burden of making a sandwich. But she, it's something. It's a, I know, but it's a choice. See, this is it's appealingly a passive. It's a choice, which is more than you can say for the movie. I wouldn't say it's appealingly passive. I would say it's mildly active. <laughs> I would say, you know, I think you, I think you're making, I think you're making a good point. I think that a journey like the journey the girl goes on in Spirited Away towards being too blonde, blasé, and passe about life. And then, you know, and no, she's not, afraid. neither of them are blah or pa or passe, uh, passe, you said? Passé means, like, out of fashion. Okay, right. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> like, 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 being blah, blah, neither of them are blah. Blase, blase. Blase. I was, I was combining blah and... <laughs> I, was, I was... No, I was taking blase and then subtracting the blah and then ending up with passé. I think is what I was trying to do. <laughs> Both Meg and Chihiro are very angry, passionate kids who are their own worst enemies. True. I guess that's They're true. Not yeah. They're not blah. They're not blasé. That's true. They're, and and they're definitely not passe. <laughs> um, I guess that's, I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess she is angry at the beginning of Spirited Away. She's, you know, she's petulant. She is, Which, uh, people say, oh, that's not charismatic. You yeah. know, and like Meg, oh, that's not charismatic to make her so petulant, like, oh, you know, bumping into things, like, why must I always, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, yeah. Everything bad happened to me. Um, these are breaking all the rules, and they're the most beloved, successful things. Yeah, I mean, there are other things that are beloved and successful that very much do not do that. But, um, I mean, I think with the Roald Dahl stuff, the, the Roald Dahl stuff is, even as a kid to me, I was not so brand of Roald Dahl because I was like, who cares about this kid, Charlie? You know, oh, okay, I mean, here's the thing. As a kid. Um, that, then you're the weirdo, then, because, like, <laughs> no, everyone, I think really these are not. super popular books. That if you're going to try to say, I'm going to try to help you write a story that everybody's going to love as become a classic, you have to reckon with the fact that Roald Dahl is really popular and people see something in him. And right. it's not enough of a, you can't refute it just by saying, well, I didn't get it. Because he's not some unknown guy that, like, I have to try to defend. This is, like, right. a classic. And, oh, sure. And, and, and people love it. And they love it to this day, which is, like, insane that people <laughs> still love these books, even though it's, like, 50 years or whatever after yeah. they've been written. So there's something to it. But I think, you know, you look at Matilda as a very different character. And you can't go, like, showing the child's proves that children should not be 
active protagonists or, you know, we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't ask children to be active protagonists. Matilda is a much more active protagonist who yeah, is, uh, it takes all kinds <laughs> that you can write about well, all no, sorts it of does, different yeah, I, Okay, great. It does take all kinds. And one certain kind has been like thrown out of the clubhouse. And I'm saying <laughs> these people deserve to be in the clubhouse. In I, fact, they've been there all along and you're the person who doesn't know how to build a clubhouse. <laughs> Hey, man. Hey, man. Que pasa? Let everybody in. It's cool. Uh, um, so I, I was reading some blog, and somebody wrote, because I, like many writers, I'm a bit of an introvert and find it harder to relate to active protagonists. Even as a reader, I actually like quieter characters a lot of the time. I don't need my main character to be kicking literary butt in order to be engaged in her story. And the, just, I took this random, I, I searched, I googled passive versus active protagonist. I was looking around, I said, this, I think this speaks to something. Right. Um, this is Close Encounters. Like, this means something. I, I want to clear out a space in these rule books for the passive, the appealingly passive protagonist. As long as, as, long as their, their um, agency increases over time, you can start as passive as you want and keep them there for longer than you think. I mean, I certainly think that the Harry Potter books... Now that I'm rereading them to my kids, I would say definitely four is the weakest book because he is the most passive in that book. Because he is just waiting for the events of the Goblet of Fire to happen. <laughs> Wait until you get to book five and they spend 200 pages uh, no. cleaning an apartment. <laughs> no, I know. We're, we're halfway through book six now. Yeah, I would... Oh, book six where they look into an uh, exposition machine <laughs> yes, for 50 pages entire, at a time? Yeah, and that's the entire book. These books but, are uh, beloved. So I there's got to be something to but, it. I, no, there's something to it, but I think that it's just a very tricky line to walk. You can't just go like, oh, this book breaks the rule, so therefore there's no rule. No, no, I, I see, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that there is this rule. Like You're, you're saying, like, I am trying, like, you're kind of coming from the point of view, like, oh, I'm bringing this rule that like, is, is, like, under siege, and I have to defend it. And I'm saying that rule that, you, that you're trying to defend is already the ironclad thing that has to be questioned. Because it's, it's like it propagates everywhere and bad advice everywhere. And like, uh -huh. it's the first thing that you read when I was like, how to write a book or make an active protagonist. And I'm saying that has to be questioned. That has to have, that has to have some chinks in that armor because that is orthodoxy, okay? So you don't have right. to defend it. It's right. already the orthodoxy. But, and I'm saying well, if we want to really write well, let's figure out exactly what the contours of this orthodoxy are and where it doesn't work. Well, you got to realize what I do for a living, which is I read people's manuscripts. And you are saying, like, oh, how come we can't have any, you know, passive protagonists, appealingly passive protagonists? Yeah, like all these great why, movies you know, and books that every, everybody loves. Yeah, like, why can't we have that? And I'm like, you want passive protagonists? Read people's unpublished manuscripts because, who boy, you will find all the passive protagonists Your customers you can hope to your find. Your customers are listening to <laughs> And your my podcast. future customers are listening customers come to me i will tell you for i will charge you some money and i will tell you that your protagonist is too passive you are looking at the greatest works of all time and you're going like you know what do the greatest works of all time get away with and you're I like i think it's get away like, they I think get it's away like a part with of a success and like you say it's like despite and i'm saying like they are and i say i think this is part of what makes it good not it's good despite this right I mean, I guess I would still say despite, I would say that generally speaking, it's better to be active than passive and active sooner rather than active later. And I think later. as soon as you're saying generally speaking, you're talking about writing, you're already in the toilet. But I think that many manuscripts that are having a hard time getting published, the problem is that the hero is not likable enough, not compelling enough. And that often one way to make that protagonist more compelling is to make that protagonist more active. But do you see how this is like mechanical advice that just kind of reproduces mindlessly you know it's just like oh no, what, what, what can we do to very, make it better yeah. oh just make them more active 
you, you know, I think that if you do it mindlessly, that would be a mistake. I think that there's a lot of mechanical advice being given that like people say, oh, this doesn't work for some reason or another, and then simply the, the advice is proffered mechanically. Well, I mean, you could tell an actor to enunciate, and then that actor could say, well, what about Marlon Brando? If if everybody if every actor had to enunciate, then there never would have been a Marlon Brando. Mm-hmm. And since Marlon Brando was a great actor, then why are you telling me to enunciate? Why should I learn to enunciate? And you would be right, and you'd be like, oh, you're being so mechanical. You're being so mechanical when you tell actors to enunciate. You're you're beating the life out of them. You're beating the Brando out of them. Don't you realize that? And your acting teacher would go, okay, nevertheless, please try to enunciate. And- so, but you. <laughs> Don't you see, you're defending an orthodoxy that, that doesn't need defending. You know, everybody, like, agrees with this, this, like, this banal advice. It's it banal advice assault. that all of the, that, that many good things flout. But yes, many good things flouted carefully. And I think a lot of things that need help are things that are flouting it unintentionally and are not flouting it carefully and would be well-advised to not do it. <laughs> and uh, I think that... Well, okay, that's why I want to go ahead and try to find a theory of yes. passive, the, the, of, of appealing passivity. Yes. How, how can we find the contours of what makes certain kinds of passivity appealing? Yes, let's that, do that. Okay, so, <laughs> so, so, so how does it work in Wrinkle in Time? How does it work in, um, in Spirited Away? How does it work in uh, Harry, Potter. Harry Potter? Let's talk about Harry Potter, because he is very passive for a long time. And then it's really only... At what point does, it, what point does he really become an active protagonist? At what point does he decide, you know, we're going to have to solve this mystery of, of the Philosopher's Stone? Okay, well, wait, it's actually, asterisk. It, let's stick with Harry Potter. Okay. You think that Harry's passivity, relative passivity, he is not as passive as he could be. You know, he is definitely standing up for himself in little quiet ways, you know, from mm-hmm. the beginning. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he they, he makes a face or something with yeah, Dudley he's says, making, I have a lot of birthday presents. He's know, mumbling, like he's mumbling uh, dissent under his breath the whole mm-hmm. time he's with the um, Dursleys. Dursleys. Well, and of course, the most, the number one thing that it turns out he does, he does totally silently that no one can tell he's doing it. It's when he tells the sorting hand to put him in Gryffindor instead of in Slytherin. You mm-hmm. know, as we eventually realize, that's you know that's the one big choice. Even though it seems like he's mm-hmm. nothing could be more passive. Everybody's <clears throat> looking at him, assuming he's doing something completely passive. He assumes he's doing something passive. He has no idea. Actually, he's doing he does something before active. that. He stands up for Ron on the train. That's true. Yeah. Um, so he's you know he is someone, but you know it does take a long time. You know he never sneaks out of the house when he's living with the Dursleys. So I guess, according to my theory of, you know, kids' books really begin when the kid sneaks out, then that book begins when they sneak out the first time and Neville tries to stop them. Yeah, and that's and well over 100 pages. Yeah, that's well book. over 100 pages into the book. What kind of notes would you have given to Harry Potter if you had gotten it as a word doc? Now, that is an interesting question because, first of all, I can safely say I would have said to cut the first chapter. <laughs> the first chapter, which is Mr. which is mm-hmm. Vernon Dursley, Going through Ted the day, watching the, watching the wizards. It's, it's a bridge between our world and their world. It is. It's necessary. I wouldn't say it's necessary. I'd say it works. You wouldn't want to be like this guy, would you? Is, yeah, you wouldn't want to be like this guy. Yeah, like, you know, here's... When I talked about it on the blog, I talked about how he is the anti-POV character. He is the character where you're like, 
you know, you enter the world through his POV and you just do not want to be in his you POV. Bring him, you bring you're him like, up you're to like, dismiss him. You're like, oh, I wish I, I'm parked on this guy's shoulder and I hate being parked on this guy's shoulder. Yeah, and don't I you, really you're wish, amused by it. I really you're wish amused. I could see... You recognize that kind of guy. I, I wish I could see what he is not seeing. I wish mm-hmm. I, w- I wish he was interested in the things I wish he mm-hmm. was interested in because then I could I could follow the characters I wish he would follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's such a bizarre concept. It's such a it's bizarre so way effective. to begin a book. And... I, I mean, I think she had a lot of trouble selling that book, and I think that first chapter was probably a big reason she had trouble well, selling that book. Well, eventually she didn't have trouble selling millions and <laughs> millions of have, copies of that book. She didn't have copies, so trouble you've got selling the actual, pushing the actual paper. So you've got a lot of gatekeepers sure who have like, these, these mechanical rules that they want to enforce, right. and her idiosyncratic and yeah. ultimately very successful first chapter did not follow the rules at first that they were trying to mechanically enforce. It's true. It's true. No, so, you know, I definitely had to grapple with that as I was reading the book, now doing what I do, and I'm like going, okay, yeah, first thing I would told her is cut this first chapter, and then, but would I have told her that he wasn't active enough? You know, it's an interesting question. You know, it seems so obvious that he's, that the book is pretty much perfect the way it is, now that we obviously know it's one of the most beloved and popular and successful books of all time. Mm. Would I have been able to see that at the time? I did. I, I read it when it, I first heard about it on NPR. Oh, and, right. I, and, I, and I went to the store. They didn't have a copy of it. I asked for a copy. It came in. I wasn't in the financial league to buy it. So I sat at Barnes & Noble, or no, Borders, or Jazz, <laughs> and, and I read the whole thing in like about five or six hours. And I put it down, and I said, this is Star Wars. This wow. is this is it. Like, this is going to be gigantic. And I, I was utterly swept away. And I could tell from the beginning. Good for you. You you were on. You were. Right I wasn't the, the only edge. one. You were not. I wasn't the only one who loved it when they first read it. <laughs> well, you like Harry Potter. You were. That was crazy of you. No, but you said that um, you you were like. Oh, I, I guess we, you you were making the point. Well, now we know everybody loves it. You right. Know what I'm saying no. Some people everybody, knew immediately. Well, but obviously the buyers did not like the 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 fourteen because they were mechanically not, enforcing because they were mechanically rules. Yeah, you're making a good point that he is pushing it. I think he's doing just enough. And you would disagree. You would say instead of Harry doing just enough to keep us on his side, that we like him because he's not doing as much as he could have been yes. doing in a rewrite. Yeah, I think kids are alienated by a too active protagonist. And and you know what? And to, to prove it, just, just look at like every other book that got written last year that had these kick-ass, awesome protagonists that are immediately forgotten. Yeah. But I mean, but I think that, you know, for every example you're giving, there's a strong counter-example. I mean, like, these are all classics that I'm saying. These are the biggest books of the past couple of years. But I mean, these... I think that Miyazaki's two best movies are Spirited Away and Castle in the Sky. And Castle in the Sky, Patsu is, you know, cannot be more active. For every Jaws, there's Raiders of the Lost Ark. You certainly don't want to... Again, wanna, I'm trying to make room wanna... for something right. against yeah. an okay, orthodoxy. you're making room. Yeah, you're making room against an orthodoxy. But I think you can see with the book you just wrote, you can see why it's sort of came alive for me when he snuck out of the house to go down to be mm-hmm. with his friend who lived in the swamp. Mm-hmm. And I think that was good of you to do that. Mm-hmm. I think that that was good that you had that moment. I think it would have meant you less if it was the first scene. That's interesting. When I gave you your notes and I said, okay, this is when the book sort of comes alive for me. This is when the character sort of comes alive for me. This is when he becomes an independent person, like literally an independent person, in that he is not living under anybody's roof. He is out on his own doing his own thing. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a tricky thing is that, you know, independence versus independence. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, can a character be an independent 
which is to say individual. Can a character be an individual if they're not independent? Can a character mm-hmm. be, to what degree does a character being independent of other people make them you know, an independent person in the hero's mind, an individual in the hero, an individual in the reader's mind? So you said independent and individual a lot, and I think, I wonder... Are if, they the same thing? Well, I think that this is a very Western preoccupation, and I wonder if we read stories that were made in China... Yeah. or Japan or something like that in which like, they don't have such a fetish of the individual yes. if there would be a, a quite a different thing of what makes a good story and like you see like how well somebody blends into a group or how well somebody upholds others or something like that and things that aren't about like fetishizing how independent how kick-ass how they're making decisions that other people have to deal with kind yeah. of things are and maybe it's it's telling that you know um you know spirited away you know maybe right. came from japan or something like that well we um, could yeah we could look at we could just spend the whole day on miyazaki and talk about like my neighbor totoro very passive these you are know, beloved the kiki's delivery service very active that mm-hmm. you know there's so you can't say like oh well the japanese don't believe in right, right. individuality or however i think there's the, more, you know, there might be more kiki's room for it because we don't be more active but there might be more room for it because yeah. they don't, maybe they don't fetishize it. Because like, I heard you say the words independent and individual like 15 times in 15 seconds. Right. And, and using them interchangeably. Like, yeah. you know, you can't be, you can't be an individual without being independent. You can't be independent without being individual. You're right. Which you're right is a very Western thing. I, I don't think it's uniquely Western. I think that there are stories from all over the world mm-hmm. in which, you know, independent and individual tend to go together. But I think that there might be more room in stories outside of America for separating those two and... And that may show us that we can get away with it more in America if we want to. I think you make a very good point. I think that depends on the reader. For me as a kid, I was reading these doll stories. And I was like, no, you know, Charlie is too off-putting to me. He's too weak and passive. I can't get into this book. And then you were not having that reaction. You know, and a lot of kids weren't having that reaction. You can't say that, like, oh, kids don't feel that way. Like, you know, some kids feel that way. Mm -hmm. And you can't say, you know, like, oh, you know, the Japanese don't feel that way. It's, it's... But yeah, you're saying that there that there is there is a space, and there are there are examples we are missing and de-emphasizing because we're seeing these as exceptions to the rule, and maybe they aren't exceptions to the rule. Maybe they prove that you know that there's counter rules. Well, I think this is I I think this is all very good. I think this is a great idea. I think you you've pretty much won me over today. I'm gonna hear your voice in my head next time I'm giving somebody notes like this guy's too passive, having sneak out of the house sooner. As long as your agency increases, yeah, gradually and, and does not increases. ever decrease, right? Um, but always gets larger and larger. Then I think you're on firm ground. Yeah, as opposed because that's thrilling. Yeah. yeah, it is. Okay, we've covered that topic well. Last time we did a podcast, we did a free story idea. I gave away an idea that I was like, oh, yeah, I remember I had that idea. And then afterwards, I said, oh, yeah, actually, you know, as opposed to most times when I give away these ideas, this was the script I actually wrote. So then I went back and I read the script. I'm like, I love this script. Oh, I love it. It's so appealing. Like, uh, I should never have given that idea away. I like it. So then you said, I told you that. And I didn't say, oh, please read the script of mine. I said, oh, I just read that script, by the way, that I mentioned on the podcast. And I really like it. And then you said, can I read it? And I said, yes. And you read it and you hated it. <laughs> yeah. You just could not have hated it more. And then you were trying to get me to do an episode like our Leica episode where we read the episode and then you uh, destroy it. And I said, no. <laughs> so you broke so every where rule we are that here. you talk every but rule that Matt talks like about that. in his book and in the podcast he he flouts but here's the thing as he said he was he learned these rules by writing the script I thought it would be fun to make the script public and say oh look here's what I used to be and now I'm all better now 
Um, but, but the problem I, is, I still like the script. I like it because it breaks all the rules. And basically, you convinced me that I would look like just a flaming hypocrite if I were in the script because it. I, and I knew it when I was writing it that you know it's not really the case where it's like, oh, I was a young idiot and I wrote the script. I knew when I was writing it because I was basically writing it around the same time that I was going. I was coming up with the checklist. And I was sort of like, oh, that's what am I not doing? And that's how I wrote the checklist, and that's how that became my book, and that book became this podcast, and that's where we are right now. Anyway, so no, I'm not you. As much as you tried to convince me that I should uh, spread the script far and wide, the more you convince me, I would not. Now, it you, would really humanize you, I think. Yeah, it would, re- you know, it would really bond you with your with your fan base. I think that I think that people idolize me, idealize me. I think they adore me. I think that, you know, that people would not want to find out I had feet of clay. I think that people see me as somewhat godlike and, uh-huh. you know, and not, you know, Definitely. not capable of, of yeah. folly or error. And <laughs> I don't think, I don't, I wouldn't want to shatter them. I feel like, I feel like that would just, people would be shattered irre- irrevocably, um, irreparably by finding, it, by they would become finding very passive. Me. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I don't want to do that to people. So now it's your turn. What is your free story idea for the week, James? Well, here's my idea. Um, you know what's terrible? What? Good ideas. I think complicated, clever things sputter out. Like, it's, it's, what's it about? Oh, it's about a boy who goes to wizard school. You, you know, and, but if you said, oh, but here's the thing. He, he, he meets his old self who's actually the villain who's time traveling and then you know but then like it's actually there's a, a there's three different worlds and he's in all three of them at once what he does in one world because right. like, oh that sounds like a much more interesting idea but it's die concept yeah yeah and I, I and i and so i'm kind of this whole idea of like well, let's give away these ideas like what's an idea an idea is nothing so right. I, let me think all the more reason so i thought it's like what's a dumb what's a dumb idea for a movie uh shark attack <laughs> you know, right. like Jaws, it's a dumb idea, but it's great. So I thought, okay, let's try to think. I was trying to think, I want to think of something basic like right. that. Yes. And then we develop it. You like to blow things up, and now you're trying to blow up. Now you're trying to blow up this podcast, this very podcast, which you are starring in. You're trying to blow up on air as we're doing it because you didn't come with the story idea. You okay. didn't come with the story I'll idea. Have a, here's a dumb idea. <laughs> okay, here's your dumb idea. I was thinking about um, Jaws. Okay. This is really good. What, what, okay. what makes it appealing? It's about this small town that's right. threatened by a monster. Yes. But you can't do it like... That's been done so many times, you know? Yeah. The temptation is like, oh, I'm going to think of a, a new way to do it. And I guess you have to do like some new way of doing it. Remember how they remade Beowulf a couple years ago and it was terrible? Yes. So what if it was like Beowulf, but it's kind of like modern day? Uh-huh. All right? There's a small town. There's this monster that's loose in it. And like, you remember there's all the warriors in Hrothgar's Hall? Right. It's just a high school football team. Yeah. And they're, they're like, we're going to get this monster, and they can't. The fact that it's public or not, like, it's, right. not, it's not accepted that it's public. So it's kind of something that the, the, maybe the high school kids know about. Right. And it, it is killing people or, or like disabling them or, or something is happening. But for some reason, the adults know about it. It's, it's kind of like a bit of a secret. And then this transfer student comes in. This is just as Beowulf comes from somewhere else. Right. And he's much more of a badass than anybody on the football team. And he goes and he does the thing. He goes and he, like, kills the monster and, you know, nails the arm up. You've read Beowulf, right? Yes. And so then, of course, there's, there's Grendel's mother, right? right. And in the, the, we go through that, and, and then, like, so, and so he kills, you know, that monster. And the, so, but it's all from the point of view of the, just, just a, a, a bunch of dumb galoot football players, you know, in this kind of night world, you know, of this town, which these monsters right. are running around. But then what's the third act of Beowulf? 
It's about he goes against a dragon and he dies, right? We're, we're back and to Lord Dragon from our last podcast. And it's kind of much later, and it's about Bale. And so what happens is that there's a time jump, uh-huh. and it's like they're all older, <laughs> and they're all kind of middle-aged, and then like the next monster, the dragon, comes along, and they, everybody has to get together for this one last thing. Like all these old football players. I don't know this if guy, you, they, you realize and, this, but you're describing something that already exists. What? You're describing it. I've never read it. You've never read it or no. seen the miniseries or seen the movie. No. <laughs> this is I mean, the big difference is instead of a football team, they're misfits. But uh, but this is very much what happens. Oh, in really? It. Okay. <laughs> is, you know, it's like the great minds. Like, dot, dot, dot. Yeah, great minds. But uh, yeah, no, it's uh, see, this is exactly what you don't do when someone is pitching you something. This is that the, that's write this down, kids. <laughs> this is when somebody pitches you or something like, yeah, it's been done. It's this popular thing. You missed it. You didn't. You didn't see it. Um, well, you, well, who doesn't do what? This is what, as a general rule, you should be yes-anding whenever anybody is pitching something. Oh, um, you oh should, so you're saying you should not do what you're doing right yeah, now. Yeah, you out there in podcast land should not right. be doing what I am doing right now, well, uh, which thing. is taking hearing somebody pitch and go like, eh, it's been done. Cast it explicitly as Beowulf. Yeah, you, you know no, what I, mean? that, I like that idea. I like that. I like the idea of like specifically like putting the arm of the monster up on the door. And the mother you know, could be. It's kind of like in in that terrible movie. It's like a kind of a. It was like Angelina Jolie. It's kind of like yeah. it was a, it was like a woman who like made it in something and had a monster. <laughs> and she and was I, wearing she was wearing high heels in the movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, but it could just be like the weird divorcee down the block, <laughs> or, or one of their teachers, or the, or the no. vice principal of the school. They could keep everything like very kind of low not low stakes because people are dying yeah. but like like local yeah um and and the the and the, but we've got this team of football players they're kind of like they're like the the roughnecks in in aliens you know right. they're a bunch of marines you know they're they're right. uh, and they all have their own weird little personalities and here's the thing this is a stupid basic idea right. that's why it would be good um especially when they the, yeah. do the time jump and they're all kind of older men and and they kind of go up against the dragon and it's like but they're they're clearly coming up against this like middle age and stuff like yeah. that, and you you hook people in with youth and sexiness and, and like, I can do anything you know. But then like you get deep whenever anything ages. Yeah, yeah. I I think I think this is this is I see what you're getting at in terms of like let's take a dead simple idea and let's see where it, where it leads us. And if uh, we find anything interesting, I think this has become more interesting as you go along. I can see this could work. Okay, now develop it. Like, what's your yes and to it? Not like I'm going to say an idea, and you're going to say whether it's good or bad, and then we like put it to the viewer, but or the listener. But like, so you're a writer. Like, what would you add to this? The thing that was most interesting was the idea of like a true badass arrives at a high school and nails the arm of a monster to the door because that's always what we in these things. The monster is always a metaphor for puberty or for growing up. And as part of it being a metaphor for puberty, it's always the case that, like, the whole thing happens in private. Like, killing the monster is always something where it's like, I have killed this monster out by the old dump and then burned the body. Mm -hmm. And I have learned and grown. And now I can go back to my life. And no one will ever know that I fought a monster in order to learn and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, because the monster is just a, it's just puberty. The monster mm-hmm. is just a metaphor. You know, you fight it on your own. This is what happens in the time. poem in Beowulf. And, Beowulf yes. nails the And so the you're door. saying, like, let's do the non-metaphorical version yes. of this. Let's do, like, no, there is an actual monster. He shows it. He is this huge badass. This isn't puberty. This isn't, you know, a private personal struggle. This is about, you know, this is, and that's very much what Beowulf is. Beowulf is about the founding of a nation state. It's about, you know, it's a, it's a founding myth for 
the Danes, Beowulf is not mm-hmm. on a personal journey. Beowulf is someone who is on a nation state journey. He is someone who is mm-hmm. who is you know becoming the leader of his people. So maybe he's like the and, mayor at the end of this. He's yeah, the I think he would mayor. have to be the mayor. He's like, he is he's the like embroiled mayor. in scandal. Yes, embroiled in scandal. Yes, he is. He is, this is someone who nails the armor of the monster to the door. This is someone who is taking control. I think that that's a big part of Beowulf, and that is something that we don't see in these teen monster movies. Is someone who you know takes the fact that they've killed this monster as a way to take control of the community, mm-hmm. take control of the town, and he swaggers you know, in. Swaggers and usually in, in yeah. a movie or a book, the person who swaggers goes down. Yeah, Beowulf doesn't. Well, he, he does. In, he, he does twenty years later. Yeah, but he comes in. He swaggers and think like, well, right. a braggart is. A, he. I mean, there is a braggart there that he puts down. He's like, can yeah. you do what I can do? I did this. I did that. Yeah. And and, and then he goes and he does it, and he is yeah. the most badass person. And, um, and that's he, what you never see. He kills the monster, and then he kills the monster's mom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no. I. Think and then maybe like the other people in the football team is like, well, we can't kill. Mrs. Simmons, <laughs> and, and he's like, "Yeah, we can." And, uh, and that because and that's like the holy shit. They're actually going to go and kill the widow that lives down the street. It's the sort of thing where you can't just go like, "Look, this story—it's just like Beowulf." So that's why I can get away with stuff like having this twenty-year time jump. You would have to justify the twenty-year time jump even to modern viewers. So like, mm-hmm. this isn't just because it's in Beowulf. And I think the way to justify it is this is a story of someone taking control of the town. This is mm-hmm. the outsider who takes control of the town, and then he is the ruler of the town by the end of the story and then you jump to like that's Beowulf is a rise and fall story but there's this 20 year gap this mm-hmm. odd 20 year gap in the middle of it where you know which fits with what you're talking about with Lord Racklin last episode of the podcast we did and I think that yeah I think this is a good idea thank you so this goes to show like popping out of like the Dan Harmon circle can actually right. lead somewhere interesting yeah and in fact since we live in an age which like so many stories are being made and they're all following the same template you have to do it or else you will make no, some derivative. Or, okay, fine, then they just, <laughs> okay, go ahead, write something that will be immediately forgotten. And, right. and, and, and then know that you never swung for the fences and die ashamed. Yeah. What? Are you saying it's bad to die ashamed? Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 nobody's going to, very few people make money from the writing anyway. So if you're going to be poor writing, you might as well have some self-respect doing it and make something that's never been, you know, that's a risk. And you can say, like, I swung for the fences. And even though, you know, the the stadium was empty, I hit a home run. You're going to bring back the 20-year time gap in the middle of the story. It, it's, I mean, it was in True Detective. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it doesn't have to it's be an it. back. Okay. I think that we need to wrap up this episode. I think this is, you know, I don't want to get rid of free story ideas because I think, frankly, it's the part that people always respond to on the blog, that that's what gets all the comments on the blog when we post these podcasts. Well, I think people, people are going to be spitting fire people over are, uh, appealing passivity. I, I, think, I think that's some nice unorthodox, I always want controversial people, stuff. I always want, in when I post these podcast episodes on my blog, secretsofstory.com, I always want people to, to get more into the debate and the comments but instead people are always like oh here's another way you could twist that free story idea well, so good. that's I one mean, reason i want to keep doing that but i think what you're doing now could work as well so we can mix it up so i think this has been an excellent episode i think we've covered a lot of good stuff any last things to add james come to the 92nd newberry film festival it's uh, all over the country I go read my book the order of oddfish really swings through the fences hit a home run nobody was in the stadium yes and read my book the secrets of story innovative tools for perfecting your fiction and captivating readers And we will see you uh, next week, quote unquote. We will see you next time we do an episode of the Secrets of Story podcast. Thanks so much, guys. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Story podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you found us. Go to secretsofstory.com and click on the Secrets of Story podcast in the sidebar to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. Find out about James's novel, The Order of Oddfish, and more at jameskennedy.com. And hey, if you'd like a free audio copy of that book or my book, sign up for a free trial of Audible at our special landing page, www.audibletrial.com slash secretsofstory. We get a few bucks and you get a free book. We're on Twitter at Secrets of Story 1 and at I am James Kennedy. Our music is by Hand and Kime. Our logo is by Jessica Friday. See you next time.